0: Welcome, here is this past Sunday sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Good morning, my name is Richard and I'm pleased to serve as an elder here at Grant and I'm delighted for this opportunity to serve this morning. But uh, just before we get uh, going, I have some important information to share with you. Today is April 25th, and that means eight months from today is Christmas. <laughs> I, you're welcome. I'm glad to uh, pass on that important information to you. All right, now to the lesson at hand. A number of years ago, I came upon a part of the Bible I had mostly ignored. The Minor Prophets. I had read them, but they seemed obscure, hard to understand. I read them just to say I had read through the Bible. But there's more to it than that. Then I discovered that with some study, and particularly by checking out the historical setting, and that becomes very significant in in dealing with the minor prophets, is finding the historical setting, there was open to me a wealth of challenge for my spiritual life. And I began to understand in a new way, or understand again the truth of 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by God, it is God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness, all Scripture, including the minor prophets. I invite you then to turn in your Bibles to the book of Nahum. Now, you will find it in between Micah and Habakkuk, or maybe it's easier just to look in the index. Now, almost a year ago, it's interesting that almost a year ago, I shared with you from this pulpit one of the, my favorite Bible verses, Nahum 1:7. And today I want to challenge you with a survey of the whole book of Nahum. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can study it and read it. And Lord, I pray that you will make us discerning hearers and faithful doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if somebody came to you and said, tell me about God, what characteristics, what attributes would you uh, use in describing God? Would you say that he is a big judge with a big stick that likes to wallop people? Or would you say that he's grandfatherly, that pats little boys on the head and says, boys will be boys? Or would you say that he's distant? He's Yeah, he's there somewhere, but he's far away. Or would you say he's loving, he's kind, he is holy, he is worthy of our adoration? Well, I hope this morning we can look at at least a few things about the God we love and serve. But before we get into the survey of the book of Nahum, let's begin by noting some information and background for this book. Now, the author is Nahum of Elkish, says the first verse. Now, the location of Elkish is is, uh, uncertain, though it may have been in Galilee. Nahum means comfort or compassion. Now this book was written uh, according to Nahum chapter 3 and verse 8. It speaks of the defeat of Thebes in 663 BC. And since this prophecy is against Nineveh which fell in 612 BC, the book is written somewhere between those two dates. And my best guess would be probably about 650 B.C. The setting of this book is that it's a prophecy against Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And you say, yes, I know about Nineveh because we have heard about Nineveh every week for a number of weeks as Cam so capably led us through the book of Jonah. Which was, had, or included a ministry to Nineveh. Now, Jonah preached in and against Nineveh about 150 years before Nahum appeared on the scene. Unfortunately, by Nahum's time, the reforms of Jonah's day had been forgotten. Now, Sennacherib was an Assyrian king who made some dramatic advancements in the city of Nineveh and helped to make it the greatest city of its time. Nahum may have witnessed the miraculous destruction of Zennacherib's army as recorded in 2 Kings 19. You may remember that the army of Assyria was lined up to fight against the people of Judah, the army of Judah, And the odds were overwhelmingly in favor of Assyria. And that night, the day before the battle, God put to death 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And the next morning when Sennacherib got up and saw this, he turned and went back to Nineveh. And by the way, Sometime later, his two sons assassinated him there. Chuck Swindle has well described or, or summarized the situation of things in these days. He said, Nahum preached during the reign of King Manasseh of Judah. Some of the, these were some of the darkest days of Judah's history to that point. It was a time filled with idolatry of all kinds in a nation that had completely turned its back on God. And the Lord's willingness to send Nahum, as we said, whose name means comfort, into such a hopeless situation evidences God's unrelenting and overwhelming grace. Just a little bit more about the city of Nineveh its origin is uh, given to us in genesis chapter 10 where we read these verses beginning in verse 8 cush was the father of nimrod who became a mighty warrior on the earth he was a mighty hunter before the lord that is why it is said like nimrod a mighty hunter before the lord the first centers of his kingdom were babylon Uruk, Akkad, Kalna in Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria where he built Nineveh. So there's the, the uh, our origin of, uh, of Nineveh in, uh, in uh, the story of Nimrod who started the city. Nineveh was a vast city on the banks of the Tigris River. It was the greatest city of all ancient cities, and it was surrounded by a massive wall and many towers for fortification. And it was the capital of Assyria for over 300 years. The people of Nineveh were were described as warlike, fierce, and violent. Nineveh was the capital of one of the cruelest, vilest, most powerful, and idolatrous empires in the world. That's the setting into which Nahum preached. Now, the message of the book of Nahum is found in this that the prophecy Nahum wrote was was there uh, or was no indication when there was no indication of any threat to Assyria. And this is important for us to note: Assyria was going great guns. They were on top of everything. And yet Nahum says, You're going to go down. That shows that God is in control and that his word is significant. The the nation began to crumble though soon after Nahum's prophecy. And the theme of the book is the destruction of Nineveh. Now as we said earlier, Jonah had preached in the city about 150 years earlier. And in response to that warning, Nineveh repented, as we learned a couple of weeks ago in our studies in Jonah. But eventually, they unfortunately returned to their wicked ways. We are thus reminded that each generation must faithfully proclaim God's truth to the next generation, and each generation must choose to follow the Lord. Now actually, here's a whole nother message, but we'll just summarize a few points in, in relation to this very significant matter. In Judges chapter 2 at verse 7, we read that the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Now, Three verses later, in Judges 2.10, we read, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, after they had died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Note the contrast. From one generation following the Lord, the next generation didn't know anything about this. Now, that Hebrew word that is translated know or new speaks both of knowledge, in other words, they were ignorant of the truths, and it has a, an element of acknowledgement in it. In other words, they were guilty of unbelief. They did not recognize who God was. Now, in contrast... In uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, we read of grandmother Lois communicating God's truth to her daughter Eunice, who in turn communicated God's truth to her son Timothy, who was a companion of Paul and a leader in the early church. Another thing to consider as we look at this matter of transferring the truth from one generation to another Let's consider the history of Grant, our church. Grant has a history of just over 125 years, very similar to the 150 years that we just mentioned for Nineveh. In the last 125 years, many churches in our country have ceased to exist, and many more, including denominations, have turned from the truth, and they practice religion rather than following Christ. But God has faithfully worked through many faithful people, leaders and, of course, congregants who have kept this church on track, who have believed God and taken the word of God as the standard and sought to follow it. Communication to the next generation has been seen over the years in the history of Grant. But it emphasizes to us also the need to diligently include children and youth in our communication. It is so very important that, of course, homes teach the Word of God to their children. But also, we as a church, we need to continually enforce that and add to that by teaching the children and youth of what God has done has what he has done in our lives, what he has done in the past, and challenge them to follow the Lord. There's one other thing, though, also in this regard. The communication of truth is not the only factor. We must live the truth and demonstrate that to the next generation. They must teach them how to live in peace and unity. You have heard it. I have heard it, of individuals who have abandoned the church because of what they observed in and through the people of the church. They have spoken of hypocrisy. They have spoken of just plain disobedience, of dissension, of gossip, etc., etc. And they have said, who wants it? I'm through with the church, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Rather, we must seek amidst all the challenges that there are, we must heed Jesus' exhortation. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another, John 13, 35. In other words, we must so live so that the next generation sees what it means for believers to love one another another. All right, back to our text. Nahum did not preach a message of warning, as did Jonah, but rather Nahum pronounced the final doom and complete overthrow of the city and her empire. The extent of the devastation that came in Nineveh's case is unbelievable and for many years there was no evidence of this city and only many years later did archaeologists find some evidence of it so the message of this book is twofold number one it is a message of comfort to judah to god's people who were a harassed and fearful people in peril through the cruelty and awful military power of of assyria they were learning that vengeance is God's. But there is also another message. It's a message of warning, showing God is just and sovereign, and all he can do with an apostate nation is to destroy it. I've referred earlier to Sennacherib's coming with his army to fight against Judah. Well, at that point in 2 Kings 18 and 19, we read of Sennacherib's challenge. He said to the people of Judah, we have conquered everybody around you. Their gods haven't helped them at all. We've wiped them all out. What makes you think that your God is any different? What makes you think that you can trust him to deliver you from us, the mightiest power in the world? Well, of course, they found out that Judah's God, the God of heaven and earth, was indeed God and greater than any nation on earth. And God, so, so God had Nahum foretell the city's destruction, and it happened about 40 years later. All right, all of that introduction to say, or to get us going in the content of the, of the uh, book of Nahum. And in the first chapter, we have a mighty God. And I want to read for you the opening verses of the book of Nahum. A prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The Lord is jealous and, a, and, a, and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry, Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. God, the judge, sits on the bench in the court of heaven, judging Nineveh. The Lord, or Jehovah, is used ten times in this book. Seven times in this first chapter. Jehovah's authority and power are prominent. Note his attributes as, as, as a judge. Verse two, jealous and avenging. And this because his great love for his people and his desire to vindicate wrong. God's jealousy, a rightful jealousy, makes a demand on his people and is a warning to his enemies. And it reminds us of Exodus 34:14. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Dr. Harry Ironside sums this up well when he says, the enemies of his people are his enemies. He makes their cause his own. Faith rests on this, and thus and is thus saved, or uh, saves much worry and anxiety. In verse 3, it says, God is great in power. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. In verse 6, he says he is indignant. Now, if this expresses God's attitude to sin, we must not tolerate it either. We must not be careless and say, well, it's just a little sin. Now, it's not a big sin, oh, that's bad, but little sins are okay. No, we must learn the lesson that God doesn't approve of sin and will judge it. God did not hastily judge, but when his mercy was spurned here in Nineveh, sure and complete judgment was the only alternative. Moreover, in the third to sixth verse, God's power over nature illustrates his ability to control the enemies of his people. Then in contrast, and we will note this a number of times, the contrast, first God as judge, now God as father. Verse three, slow to anger. Verse seven, good, a stronghold in trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. And the other interesting thing is that God's attributes always work in perfect harmony. For us, that's a little bit difficult, because we tend to be on one side or the other, but God's attributes work together in perfect harmony. And we continue on in verses eight and nine, and Nineveh is condemned to utter destruction. Note the statements, He makes an end. He brings to an end. And while all this was going on in, in Nineveh, they were defeated while the defenders were drunk and asleep. The great Sennacherib had been defeated. The city's name is wiped out. And in verse 14, God says, I will dig their grave. Now, normally, empires fell, but cities survived, but not in this case. Note the finality of these these statements. God brought it to an end. But note that the message of comfort to Judah, in contrast to the judgment, is found in verses 7, verse 15, and and other places that we will point out later, God's mercy amidst the judgment. In verse 15, Nahum writes as though Nineveh was already destroyed— And the messenger of peace bringing that good news was arriving in Jerusalem. Therefore, the people could be called to celebrate their festivals again. It hadn't happened yet, but Nineveh was giving God's word and God said, that's how it's going to be. And Nineveh, or and Nahum, clearly presented it. In chapter 2, we have a great fall. In verse 1, the attacker refers to the invading Babylonians and Nahum's commands are really a form of ridicule when he says, guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves. He was really mocking them because he knew what was going to happen. But before continuing with the battle description, Nahum has a word of hope for Israel in the second verse when he says, the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. Again, the contrast between judgment and God's mercy. Bef- amidst the destruction spoken of, there is a promise of restoration. Verses three and four describe the attacker's equipment and speed. Let me just note to the fourth verse in particular the chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. I was interested in one commentator who said, I think this describes today's automobiles in the city. I just thought it was kind of cute. I think it maybe is a little far-fetched. But nevertheless, maybe it does describe the cars chasing around all over the place. And the following verses in chapter 2 describe the defeat of the city as floods wash away the walls and drunken defenders stumble around, people flee, and the enemy plunders. Nineveh had gained great wealth by plundering, and now the tables were turned. Remember, all of this was stated when there appeared to be no threat to the city. And verse 13 is the first of two statements in this book the other being in chapter 3 verse 5 in which God states his position he says I am against you They had spurned God and God said I am against you This has to be one of the most devastating statements any person or nation could ever hear and it reminds us of Hebrews 10:31 It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So this is a message of warning to those who ignore God. But again, I remind you, note the contrast to verse 7 of the first chapter. The third chapter speaks of a total defeat. God's dealing with Nineveh is an example of God's law stated in Galatians 6-7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows, God said that, and he means it. Nineveh had lived by violence, and they would die by violence. Nineveh's lust for power, her appeal to witchcraft in chapter 3, verse 4, and her utter disregard for life had not gone unnoticed by God. You know, that description speaks a lot of what our day sounds like, doesn't it? Lust for power, the occult, disregard for life, That's the way it is so often in our society as well. Nineveh had captured Thebes, a city with many similarities to Nineveh, and now Nineveh would be destroyed. The city's fortifications would uh, crumble. Her defenders who were noted for their fierceness would be helpless. Destruction was certain. God's judgment is not stayed by wealth or defensive strategies or other human efforts. When God is against a person or a nation, all resistance is futile. But in contrast, God is strongly on the side of those who trust him. Note the provision again for those who are his concern. Chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 13, a, a, a statement of vic- or, uh, uh, verse 13, a statement of victory. Chapter 1, verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 2. These are statements of where God says, I am for you. He was against the wicked, but he was for his people, and we need to count on that. One final thought uh, from this chapter, and I turn to uh, 2 Peter uh, chapter 13. And I want to read at uh, beginning at verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's the question pointed at us. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Judgment is a serious matter. Opportunity must not be squandered. Sin has a terrible price if allowed to carry on. Well, we must summarize. We have already mentioned a major lesson in that we are to Uh, uh, work on our communication from one generation to the other of what God has done. But here are seven more. God hates sin and will judge it. You can count on that. Secondly, God loves his people and is merciful and gracious to them. You can count on that. Thirdly, God extends mercy, grace, and salvation to all who will confess their sin and acknowledge their need. Salvation is available to everyone. Somebody may say, well, I am really bad. I have done such terrible sins. God couldn't deal with that. My friend, yes, he can. On the other hand, some say, well, I'm such a model citizen. I am such a good person. God would be pleased to have me. And we say, the scripture says, all our righteousness, the best things we can do are like filthy rags in buying salvation. And so the scripture promises, whether you are very bad or think you're very good and anything in between, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, says Romans ten thirteen. Have you received God's gift of eternal life? If you have, then thank God in these moments for that. But if you have never received Christ, if you have never established that personal relationship with him, then I invite you to call on him, to acknowledge that you are a sinner, to confess your sin, to believe on him, for he died for you and rose again to offer you eternal life, and then to receive that gift. And if you are doing that this morning, or if you have recently received Christ, why don't you let us know so that we can celebrate with you? Contact the church, phone us, uh, email us, whatever. Make contact so that we can have a ministry to you and celebrate with you what God has done. Or maybe you've got questions. You say, hi, I don't understand it all. Well, contact us. Let us try to be of help to you. Number four, never take God's word lightly. Don't say, well, I kind of like this, but I don't like that and this and that. No, take it seriously. That's why hypocrisy, carelessness, and lethargy are condemned. Number five, God is sovereign, He will accomplish His purposes. Six, God's timing may not be our timing but his timing is always perfect. You can count on that because he cares for you. He knows what is best, and he will do it. Number seven, God loves you, and he is near. Count on that. You may feel alone. You may feel unloved. You may feel abandoned. But listen, God does love you, and he is near, and he wants to help. Let him do that. So, in view of all this, let's love him, trust him, and serve him with joy and thanksgiving. For our God is a great God. He is worthy, and he loves us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you care. Thank you that you are near. Thank you that you have plan and purpose, and we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at Grant Memorial Church.